2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Douglas Morris, author of the book Legal Sabotage, Ernst Frankel in Hitler's Germany. Douglas, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Uh, Hi, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you.
2: And we're thrilled to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Well, I'm both a criminal defense lawyer for indigent defendants and a independent uh, legal historian. I work at Federal Defenders of New York, which is a private nonprofit corporation set up to provide lawyers for people who can't afford their own lawyers in federal court. And I represent clients who have been charged with a variety of federal crimes, not state crimes, uh, but crimes uh, such as uh, drug smuggling, uh, fraud, immigration offenses, gun offenses, uh, and occasionally a bank robber. Uh, I also um, have um, uh, had originally gone to graduate school at the University of Rochester, uh, had uh, left graduate school with everything done but my dissertation when I essentially thought there were no jobs and went on to law school and uh, worked at a a uh, law firm in New York City, Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Warren and Garrison, and then went on to Federal Defenders. Um, and while I was there, I never lost my love and interest in history and wrote what I first thought was going to be an article um, about uh, Max Kirschberg, who was the leading criminal defense lawyer in Munich um, uh, during the Weimar Republic between the end of World War I and the beginning of the Nazi era. I became interested in him because he had written about uh, innocent uh, defendants who had been convicted of crimes. And I first thought I was going to write a comparison between uh, miscarriages of justice in the United States and Germany. But the more I studied him, I I realized that I had to deal with his whole career because he was the leading political uh, lawyer in uh, Munich. Uh, during the Weimar Republic, and also came upon the, this issue of non political miscarriages of justice. So that led to my first book uh, entitled Justice Imperiled the, uh, the anti Nazi uh, lawyer Max Hirschberg in uh, Weimar, uh, Germany. And it raises issues of the relationship uh, between uh, political justice and non political justice.
2: What was that led you to turn to Ernst Frankel? Was it a natural extension? Were you searching around for uh, similar uh, examples of attorneys uh, who were practicing during this interwar period, or was this something that was proposed to you?
0: Well, it did follow from my book on uh, Max Hirschberg, because I then began to look at Jewish lawyers in Nazi Germany. The last chapter of my book on Hirschberg deals with his Uh, career in uh, 1933 when he had been arrested and then released and ultimately got out of uh, uh, Germany. And I began to look at Jewish lawyers in Nazi Germany. And I first thought that I would write a book on Jewish lawyers in Nazi Germany. There are uh, several books on that in German, uh, which all kind of follow the same framework of, uh, uh, of having long introductions, um, that lead up to individual biographies. I thought there was room, uh, to write a more synthetic history of Jewish lawyers in Nazi Germany. And when I, I, when I did that, I began to focus in on a limited number of particularly interesting, uh, Jewish lawyers. I had known about Ernst Frankel from his, uh, his, uh, classic work, The Dual State, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later. Um, And I became intrigued by him. And what intrigued me was that Frankel is a very prominent uh, figure uh, in 20th century German uh, intellectual history. There are many people who have studied what he did during the Weimar Republic when he was a young rising star in the Social Democratic Party and uh, in labor law and in Weimar constitutional law. He was law partners in the late 20s and early 30s with Franz Neumann uh, who wrote the classic work Behemoth uh, about the uh, Nazi uh, political and economic uh, system. So there are many people who had studied uh, Frankel, uh, during the Weimar Republic. Similarly, there are many people who've studied, uh, Ernst Frankel uh, in the post-war world when he, uh, ultimately, uh, went back to, uh, West Germany, uh, taught at the Free University of Berlin and really helped to establish, uh, the, uh, field of political science in, uh, West Germany, uh, and in which he developed a theory of pluralistic democracy. Um, and there was almost a conflict between these two sets of people. The people who liked Frankl in the Weimar Republic liked uh, in part his Marxism. The people who liked Frankl in the post-war world liked him in part because he was no longer a Marxist. <laughs> and what, what struck me was that his most important work was the dual state and the least study of Frankl was what he did during the Nazi era and what he did during the Nazi era was really quite remarkable. He stayed in Nazi Germany through September 20 of 1938. During that time, he uh, practiced law. He represented defendants and not only any defendants, he represented political defendants. Uh, Sometimes he got acquittals in those cases, Um, in addition to representing political defendants in court, he worked in the underground in various ways. He had contacts throughout the underground in, uh, in Nazi Germany, um, and he wrote illegal, uh, articles, uh, five major illegal articles that were, uh, published and distributed in in an illegal journal in Nazi Germany. and. Furthermore, the third thing that he did was he began to write this classic work, The Dual State, which was the first book length, comprehensive study of the Nazi uh, era's legal political system written from within Nazi Germany. Uh, He had finished the first draft of that book uh, before he uh, left Germany on September 20 of 1938. Um, and I thought this combination was striking and fascinating. And I wondered to myself, how did he do it? How did he remain there and represent political defendants and work in the underground and write this treatise, this, uh, classic book and not get arrested? Um, and then I asked myself a second question and that was, was my initial information about the extent of his representation of clients and about the extent of his work in the underground, maybe exaggerated. Uh, So I uh, tried to track down everything I could um, about um, what he had done in Nazi Germany. Um, That was not easy because. There are uh, limited sources on what Frankel did during Nazi Germany. That is one of the reasons I believe that nobody had studied it before. Uh, There are limited sources because uh, uh, he he practiced, for example, often before what's called the Kammergericht, uh, which was the uh, uh, Supreme Court in Prussia in Berlin. Uh, That's where he had many of the trials. Uh, the, uh, records of that court had been bombed out and incinerated. Um, he, there are limited sources because being a, uh, practicing lawyer in Nazi Germany, uh, it wasn't possible or certainly not wise to keep a lot of, of one's own written records. Uh, there were limited sources, uh, because, uh, uh was married and happily married, but he did not have any children. Uh, So he didn't have children who were going to uh, carry on his uh, legacy. And there are limited sources because I believe that Frankel himself, um, having practiced under uh, enormous pressure for these five and a half years, was traumatized uh, by his uh, life in Nazi Germany and was reluctant in the post-war years uh, to talk about it. Uh, so it really required, uh, a search, uh, through a variety of, uh, places to, to gather together information about what Frankel had done in Nazi Germany. Uh, and those sources were a variety of, uh, scattered memoirs. Uh, those sources were an occasional, um, uh, uh, writing that Frankel produced after the war in response to people's requests. Uh, to him, uh, for their own restitution, uh, claims. Uh, and those sources, uh, include, if I didn't say it already, uh, memoirs of various people. Uh, then there are scattered Gestapo records and, uh, scattered, uh, court records. And from that, uh, I think it's, a- we are able to piece together uh, what Frankel did in uh, uh, Nazi Germany uh, as a lawyer and as uh, someone in uh, the underground. And if I just might wrap up this uh, segment by saying that what I discovered um, was uh, in terms of my uh, second question, not only how did he do it, but he, did he really do as much as I originally thought what I discovered was that he did actually much more than I had originally expected. Uh, He took on a whole series of risks um, while he uh, doggedly opposed the Nazi regime and did what he could to help uh, members of the resistance in the
2: Nazi regime. You've given us a nice summary of Ernst Frankel's life. And, uh, and there are a lot of themes that you've mentioned that uh, I you know, do plan on, on asking you about uh, in a little bit. But I want to return to this question of the dual state theory. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain what the dual state theory was in a nutshell, and its legacy for political science. Because you, you talk a lot of Ernst Frankel as a lawyer, and yet you, you've also alluded to the fact that he is in some ways better known today as being one of the founding fathers of the discipline of political science within germany and a lot of that rests upon this theory and his uh, and his advancement of it
0: yes yeah, so the dual state theory is a theory about how to understand the legal and political system of nazi germany and it looks at nazi germany in terms of what is translated into English as the prerogative state on the one hand and the normative state on the other. The prerogative state was the realm of arbitrary power and official violence and against which citizens enjoyed no legal protection. It was epitomized in the activities of the Gestapo, of the SS, of the SA. The normative state was the legal order, Um, and that legal order uh, consisted of two parts in turn, and that was traditional law and the traditional legal system, uh, which was carried over uh, and already existed when the regime began, and of newly enacted Nazi law. Now, the dual state theory. Um, which understands Nazi Germany in terms of the prerogative state and the normative state. The first, or uh, one of the first things to say and to clarify is that Frankel, in using the term the normative state, did not mean the rule of law. The rule of law is a liberal democratic uh, 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 idea about fair and neutral laws in which people are treated equally under the law and in which the laws are enforced by a neutral uh, judicial system. That is not what Frankel meant when he was talking about the normative state. He was talking about the legal system as it existed in Nazi Germany, which consisted of traditional institutions and laws uh, and of newly enacted Nazi law. to leave it at that might make it appear as if his theory of the dual state was a question of static definitions, but that is also not the case. In fact, what Frankel showed in his book of uh, the dual state, and which I believe carries over and can be used to understand the legal and political system in Nazi Germany, is that there was a dynamic interplay between the prerogative state and the dual state. Um, In that dynamic interplay, the prerogative state had the upper hand and the prerogative state brought the normative state uh, along with it. Um, And it uh, caused the normative state to uh, follow the example of the prerogative state and to institute more and more Nazi values um and uh more and more of the arbitrary, arbitrariness of the prerogative state and certainly of the discrimination uh of the uh, uh of the uh Nazi uh uh of the Nazi regime so the when one reads the dual state and understands the interplay between the prerogative state and the normative state as a dynamic process it sh- the the the, the uh, treatise shows how the Nazi legal system, uh, became more and more arbitrary and unfair, um, in, in a, as time went on. So that is, uh, the, uh, an overview, I believe, I hope, of what, uh, Frankel meant by the, uh, dual state. Um, one of the biggest, uh, uh, misinterpretations uh, and a misinterpretation that was carried over into the post-war world by at least certain people was to, uh, for for example, former Nazi jurists or former Nazi prosecutors, uh, to claim that they had been part of the normative state. They were trying to uphold the rule of law. Uh, That is uh, usually wrong as an independent historical analysis of those various figures, uh, but it is certainly also a misuse of the of what uh, Frankel meant by the normative state and of its relationship to the prerogative state.
2: One of the things that I think is really fascinating about this theory is that it's a theory that is you know a a, you know a product at least in 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 in, uh, part of Frankel's own firsthand experiences, witness and, 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 uh, observations of the, uh, of what happened in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And you've mentioned how, you know, this in some ways starts with the experience of, uh, Jewish lawyers during the 1930s. And you alluded to how this was, uh, how the how the project started. I, I thought the chapter uh, that you in which you uh, talk about it, it, it was one of the most fascinating in the book. What what happened to Jewish lawyers? Because it, it does raise this interesting question of how Frankel was able to practice for as long as he did. I mean, it's easy to uh, to t- kind of read back the, the the wartime experience and assume that you know at, you know, by by the end of January nineteen thirty three Jewish lawyers were you know out on their ear. But the reality, as you explain. Was a lot more nuanced and uh, a lot more complicated.
0: Yeah, So the Nazi regime immediately attacked Jewish lawyers in Nazi Germany. Jewish lawyers in Nazi Germany were an extraordinarily uh, uh, constituted, an extraordinarily large proportion of the legal profession. Um, probably um, approximately one third of the uh, of the lawyers in in pre Nazi Germany uh, were Jewish, at least during the Weimar Republic. They were also very influential in the profession and uh, in uh, bar associations. Uh, and some of the most prominent lawyers during the Weimar Republic were uh, Jewish in, uh, in a whole variety of fields from, um, from uh, Max Alsberg, the leading criminal defense lawyer in Berlin uh, to Max Hirschberg, who I mentioned, the leading criminal defense lawyer in Munich to Max Hackenberg, the leading commercial lawyer uh, in Berlin, uh, to Max Friedlander, who was the leading ethics, one of the leading ethics lawyers in uh, in, uh, Weimar, Germany. So they were very influential. And when the Nazis took power, they wanted to get rid of Jewish lawyers. And their first uh, blow against Jewish lawyers were uh, violent attacks on them during March of 1933. Uh, in which SA uh, throughout uh, Germany at um, uh, different times during March would uh, enter into courthouses and throw out Jewish uh, lawyers and also Jewish judges who uh, were less significant in terms of the judiciary, but were still uh, there. Um, And then uh, after having used this initial burst of violence, Uh, They uh, instituted on April 7 of 1933 uh, not only the law on the restoration of the professional civil service, which applied to bureaucrats in Germany and to judges, but the law on the admission uh, to the bar, which uh, presumptively disbarred everybody with three exceptions, Uh, uh, disbarred every Jewish lawyer with three exceptions. The two major exceptions being senior lawyers who had been admitted to the bar before the beginning of World War one and veterans who had fought during World War One, so that ultimately what happened was that uh, in the course of 1933, approximately two thirds of Jewish lawyers remained uh, as lawyers, uh, and Frankel remained as a lawyer because he was a veteran. He had wor- uh, fought in World War One. He had fought on the front line in World War One. He had been injured in a hand grenade attack during World War One. Uh, so there was. Of that attack on uh, Jewish lawyers, after the uh, initial violence and after the uh, law on the admission to the bar of April 7 of 1933, there were between then and 1938 a variety of occasional small me- measures. Uh, but the next major legislation or decrees uh, were uh, was the one issued by. Uh, uh, Hitler on September 27 of 1938, which disbarred all lawyers as of November 30 of 1938. In the time in between, Jewish lawyers were under uh, economic pressure. There was a deliberate attempt to squeeze Jewish lawyers out of uh, the legal profession, uh, and they were under incredible Social pressure; as they were socially isolated, they were socially isolated from German colleagues, and they were socially isolated from each other. So that in that five-year period, the number of lawyers, uh, of Jewish lawyers, diminished. Uh, so that by 1938, uh, the uh, the the percentage of lawyers in Germany who were Jewish was probably around 13 percent or so. Um, so that was the way that, uh, Jewish lawyers were squeezed out of the profession. And it is an illustration, as I think you pointed out in your, or hinted to hinted at in your question. It was an illustration of the prerogative state and the normative state, uh, and how they exercised and worked in tandem. It was an illustration of the prerogative state with the initial violence, um, uh, of March of, uh, 19- uh, 33, uh, brought in, I, I should add by the, uh, uh, mass arrests after the Reichstag, uh, fire in fe- on February 28 of 1933 and a result of the Reichstag fire emergency decree, um, where there was an immediate roundup of, uh, uh of opponents to the regime, including, uh, Jewish lawyers who are opponents to the regime. There was the continued violence, which I mentioned during March, uh, into April of uh, 1933 against Jewish lawyers. That was the prerogative state. That was a form of intimidation and a form of intimidation which stuck because the memory lasted. And then there was the normative state, which was illustrated through the use of law, uh, the law on the admission to the bar, uh, through the uh, way in which law can accomplish the Nazi regime's purposes more systematically and thoroughly than violence alone. Uh, So that is the way that the prerogative state and the normative state worked in tandem to push Jewish lawyers uh, out of the profession uh, during these five years. And those were the circumstances uh, in which uh, Frankel uh, practiced law Uh, While he was in Nazi Germany, although I should add that, as far as I can tell, in many ways, uh, Frankel's practice of law was really utterly unique and different from almost anybody else. Uh, And certainly almost it was uh, fundamentally different from almost any other Jewish lawyer that I've come across.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: I thought you made that point well when you uh, had a few comparative examples of what lawyers did. You know, going abroad. Uh, you know, some of them, a couple, some of them committed suicide because they were so despondent, and, and it, it made Ernst Frankel's you know, uh, you know commitment to, to fighting on very remarkable in that respect. So, what does he do as a lawyer during those five years? What what sort of cases are, are, are he is he involved in? And how do they reflect uh, his uh, approach towards dealing with the Nazi regime generally?
0: Uh, Ernst Frankel had been the uh, counsel during the Weimar Republic for the Metalworkers Union, which was one of the largest unions in Germany, if not the world. Uh, That union was smashed. On May 2nd of 1933, when the SA raided its headquarters, uh, Frankel's partner, Ernst Frank, um, uh, Franz Neumann, uh, who had been counsel for the Construction Workers Union, fled Nazi Germany the next week. Um, but what had already begun to happen is that workers who had been arrested began going to uh, Frankel and Neumann or legal advice. As their secretary said, they came into the office with the SWAT sticker uh, carved into their scalps. They went behind the doors. There were closed doors. The shutters were drawn and the consultations uh, began. Uh, uh, members, uh, people who were uh, in various forms of the resistance were arrested and often went then to Frankel because they knew of him. I I might just make an aside at this point about the nature of the resistance that existed in Nazi Germany uh, from uh, the beginning through the late 30s. Because when we talk about resistance, people about anti-Nazi resistance, people often think about the resistance that existed during World War II, about the plot against uh, Hitler culminating in the uh, July 24 uh, assassination attempt by Stauffenberg uh, coming out of uh, uh, an anti-Hitler conspiracy consisting of members of, uh, of the elites, members of the, uh, some members of the Wehrmacht, some members of the church, uh, some members of, of business, but members of the elites who in 1933, were more often than not in fact supporting Hitler, uh, or certainly uh in one way or another, but were not resisting Hitler. Who was resisting Hitler? Uh who was resisting Hitler was often people who were uh in a position of weakness. Often workers um and uh including uh often uh, uh Jews, uh but the uh Communist Party And the Social Democratic Party ignominiously collapsed uh, and didn't push forward the kind of resistance that many of its members might have hoped for. And that many leading intellectuals, uh, such as uh, 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 Franz uh, Neumann, for example, uh, later bitterly regretted. Rather, what happened was the resistance was a series of small scattered groups. Uh, of kind of marginal groups that had existed in the past and uh, could uh, take on the role of uh, resistance of some new groups that appeared. Um, And those groups included uh, groups uh, under the names of, and I'll say it in English, the International Socialist Combat League, uh, a group called New Beginning, a group called the Red Shock Troop, a group called the Socialist Workers' Party a group called the Communist Party Germany Opposition. Many of the members of these groups went to Frankel for representation in the summer and fall of uh, 1933. And in fact, one of the things that I found out, uh, this is one of the surprises that, uh, that, that hit me when I was asked that question, did he really do as much As I had first thought, and I said earlier in this interview that, in fact, he did more. Um, He did more because as far as I could tell, among other things, uh, there was nobody who had had as many contacts with as many of these different uh, small resistance groups as Frankel, because he was representing them uh, in court as they were charged uh, with uh, various uh, crimes of subversion and treason. Often the crimes were uh the crime of distributing illegal pamphlets. Uh and uh Franco represented uh such people, while by the way, he then began writing illegal pamphlets himself. <laughs> and uh he went into court and represented uh these uh various uh defendants. And he represented them effectively. Um he what were the characteristics of his representation? Well, on the one hand, uh, he did not represent, uh, the defendants the way someone like Max Alsberg, uh, might have represented defendants in Weimar Berlin. Max Alsberg was a flamboyant figure. He was a public figure, um, and he was a noticeable figure. Um, Ernst Frankel did not draw attention to himself personally. Uh, if he had done so, he would have, uh, dashed his hopes for success in no time and jeopardized his own, uh, safety. Um, rather he was, uh, represented defendants, um, <clears throat> without publicity or at least without newspaper publicity. Um, and, uh, and, and then came into court and, uh, made his, uh, presented, uh, presented evidence and made his arguments, uh, in court, uh, before the judges there. I'll to give you one example for, uh, which is the case of, uh, the prosecution in a, uh, small Silesian town of Jauer, J-A-U-E-R, um, which is reported by one of the 50 or so, uh, defendants in that case named Recher Rothschild. Um, and what happened there was that there was a women's prison and the head of the prison wanted to make a name for himself and therefore cooked up a charge that one evening, these women mutinied uh, by dashing down a hallway and making a commotion. And he put them on trial uh, for, for mutiny. Frankel appeared at that trial with two of his non-Jewish colleagues who we worked with throughout the 30s, Heinrich Reinefeld and Werner Villa. Um, And in Rothschild's um, description, she says that suddenly these three lawyers were there. Um, They didn't make fanfare. They came and they appeared in court. When they appeared in court, uh, they divided up their tasks. Reinefeld dealt with the indictment. Verna Villa dealt with the legal definition of the crime of mutiny. And Frankel cross-examined the witnesses. And he cross-examined two witnesses who were uh, privileged women prisoners um, who, um, uh, who testified for the prosecution. And in cross-examining them, he drew out from one of the witnesses, why are you here? You're here for having murdered your child, and you want to get out from under the life term that you face for that. And as to the other witness, he cross-examined her and said, why are you here? You're here for having murdered your husband with rat poison, and you want to testify In order to get out from under the life sentence that you're facing on that charge. So he was unabashed uh, in the cross-examination that he undertook. He put on a defense witness, one of the guards at the prison, who said, you know, that night, was there a commotion? Not really. Maybe the women were a little louder than usual. And at the end, the judge acquitted all of the defendants. Uh, so here was a case which was in some ways under the radar screen. It was in Jauer, which was off the beaten path. Uh, Frankel went in and he made a. Uh, an argument based upon the evidence uh, and um, and 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 won in the case, so that's one example among other examples. There are other examples of when Franco went into court and showed that uh, that 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 the defendants had given confessions under torture. Um, And he um, what one of the uh, dramatic examples of that is the Vigert case um, in which there was a whole series of of um, a, 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 a whole a group of defendants, it was a multi-defendant case. Um, and they were charged with, um, uh, with uh, treason and distributing illegal literature. And the Gestapo agents attended the trial every day and the defendants were silent. One day, the trial continued on a Saturday. And the Gestapo agents were no longer there. And suddenly the defendants began to speak. And Frankel described what happened in that uh, on that occasion. If you don't mind, I'd like to quote what he said. Please he do. Said when the spect- Excuse me. I said, please do. Yes. When the spectator section was totally empty during the Saturday afternoon session, one of the defendants, Willie Gleitzer, declared in great agitation that he recanted all his statements to the police because they resulted from the worst sort of mistreatment. At that point, the other defendants, almost without exception, broke down. The accused women sobbed openly, and even the accused men cried. Then one after the other, they told everything. Finally, the presiding judge of the panel, Ernst Eilers, announced that in rendering judgment, the court would not consider the defendant's confessions, but that the judgments would cover only the statements that the defendants made during the oral proceedings. Uh, in that case, most of the defendants were uh, acquitted. So, uh, and that was not the only occasion in which Frankel brought out that there had been testimony under torture. Now, these cases took place in, uh, mostly in 1934 and 1935. Uh, In 1936, there is a really a dramatic turning point. And that turning point is with a decree of June 17 of 1936, in which, which made Heinrich Himmler, who was already the head of the SS, that decree made him also the head of the German police. So consolidated police power under Himmler Uh, And with that consolidation of the police power under Hitler, what that actually represented was a consolidation of the prerogative state and an enhancement uh, even more of the power of the prerogative state. So that was one of the turning points uh, that took place uh, uh, during 1936, uh, and that is a, a turning point at which uh frankel began to uh his legal practice began to dry up uh not completely but significantly uh and we, and and also it was right after that that there was a case in which uh frankel uh crystallized for himself uh the theory of the dual state
2: that's actually right. what I was going to ask you about next because you he's doing, he's engaged in this legal work at the same time as he's developing his dual state theory. And you have this chapter in which you talk about his scholarship and how the degree to which it also represents a form of resistance. And you've already alluded to this when you talked about these essays that he was writing for illegal journals. What was he articulating during this period? And and why was he getting it out in the way that he was? How was this Uh, serving as a critique of what the Nazis were doing? Well,
0: there was an interesting transformation, I believe, in Frankl's thinking between the mid-1930s and the late 1930s. Uh, In the mid-1930s, one of the essays that he wrote was an essay entitled uh, The Point of Illegal Work. And it was an essay uh, that, among other things, uh, was uh, intended to encourage uh, social democrats uh, to uh, resist the nazi regime and to uh, ex- a- and to encourage them to resist the nazi regi- regi- regime on the argument that illegal resistance was necessary to uh, undermine the nazi regime to show that the uh, Nazi propaganda wasn't working to show and to make visible that there was a social democratic resistance, um, and that it was a social democratic resistance, uh, which, uh, carried force that was held by, uh, many workers and that, uh, had the potential, uh, at some point to burst on the scene, uh, and to, um, undo uh, the, uh, the Nazi regime. Uh, it was, uh, a, one of the most, uh, one of the pieces of Frankel's that stands out for its tone of inspiration and encouragement and rousing the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, rousing resistors to act against the regime. Uh, but it was, uh, also, uh, had no illusions in the sense that uh, it clearly understood um, that the um, uh, that, that there were great risks in uh, in in undertaking resistance. Uh, in fact, if I might just quote one more passage from the end of this uh, essay that Frankel wrote uh, in 1935, uh, uh, um, he um, he concluded it as follows. He said, yes. We have become criminals. If we were not empowered by our illegal activity, I fear that we too would sink into the smog that oppresses Germany. Because we work illegally, we keep ourselves fresh. That is the point of illegal socialist work in the Third Reich, to infuse the workers with strength, the waverers with trust, the sufferers with hope and the rulers with fear. Does illegal work have a point? What would Germany be without illegal work? Now, after that essay, Frankel did undergo a uh, change of his attitude because he began to realize that, in fact, the Gestapo and the Nazi regime had crushed most of the resistance, uh, and that the workers had to a larger extent than he had at first anticipated been co opted. And then he faced a issue which was important to him is how do we justify, uh, illegal resistance uh, and, you know, that might not be an issue that would be of interest to a non-lawyer or someone who wasn't thinking uh, legally or jurisprudentially. You're up against a regime like Nazi Germany, you resist. But Frankel was concerned about how do we justify that resistance? Um, and how do we. We group and think about uh, formula uh, 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 about coming up with a resistance that might have some hope of being effective. So this is the time that he was writing the book, uh, The Dual State. And the answer that he came up with was uh, to work with the idea of natural law. Now, I have to say, in terms of talking about natural law, uh, my wife warns me, be careful about that, Douglas. People's eyes start rolling over when you say natural law. But it is really It is really, uh, in its essence, uh, a concept of a source of law outside of statutes, uh, a source of principles outside of statutes. Uh, And for Frankel, uh, it was surprisingly the idea that he found uh, to be very fruitful uh, in terms of justifying an illegal resistance. In fact, In his book, The Dual State, most scholarly attention is on the first part, where he deals with the prerogative state and the normative state, or on the third part, which deals with the problems of monopoly capitalism and how that is expressed in Nazi Germany. But the middle part is really an argument uh, for uh, natural law as a justification for a unified resistance. And when we talk in these terms or when Frankel talks in these terms of unified resistance, he's now gone, uh, in a different direction from what he had written about in his article, the point of illegal work, which was directed towards, uh, to, towards resistors who were social Democrats. He's now saying resistors have to include social Democrats, but it also has to include other people, has to include religious people. Um, and how do we, unify, um, the, uh, a a wider range of resistors, uh, in order to, uh, try to oppose the Nazi regime. Now, when Franco was, uh, came up with this idea and put it forth in the middle chapter of, uh, the dual state, um, he was not thinking in terms of United front. In the 1930s, there were various efforts to create a united front, most importantly, between social Democrats and and communists and how to organize that as a practical matter. Frankl was not thinking in those terms. He was not an organizer. He was thinking in theoretical terms and he was partly thinking in theoretical terms because he no longer saw a realistic possibility of a uh, pra- a resistance that against the Nazi regime that could be effective at that, uh, moment. Uh, and in a way Frankel was then cornered. What do you do when you're, when the uh, resistance has been crushed, when the possibilities for organizing a resistance are certainly not, uh, easy to see. Um, but you still have to think about how you resist the regime in those circumstances. And that's what Frankel was doing when he, uh, wrote, uh, the dual state. And there is a, 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 a kind of, when one contrast, the difference between the pamphlets or articles that were illegally distributed that Frankel had written, uh, from 34 to 37 and the dual state, I mean, one of the contrasts is that what was the distribution? of one of these illegal uh, pamphlets or articles, uh, during the Nazi regime. Well, estimates can vary, uh, but it would vary usually between one to two or 3000, uh, people would come across, uh, articles like these, uh, in one circumstance I saw a number 14,000. In terms of Frankel's dual state manuscript, there is one account of a copy of it being distributed uh, it, uh, among the Abwehr in uh, Admiral Canaris's uh, office at the beginning of World War II. So it certainly wasn't a approach that was at that moment out to communicate with a lot of people within Nazi Germany. Um, it was uh, in part a result of necessity in terms of what had happened to the resistance and also um, a possibility because although Frankel's uh, legal practice never disappeared. It certainly um, was uh, had been diminished in terms of what he could do in his last two two and a
2: half years in Nazi Germany. And that's really I, when at the end of your book you you you, uh, you know, talk about Frankel's significance uh, for us today, which is he it is this interesting challenge. You know what does a A a lawyer, you know, practicing in you know a a, a, you with liberal values do when you are in an illiberal regime. How does one remain true to those values? How does one carry out their, their duties? And and it really is a a fascinating case study of not only not just in terms of what he did, but how we have someone who thought through a lot of those theoretical implications.
0: I, I think uh, that is right. He did think through the uh, theoretical implications. Um, and in uh, his book, The Dual State, I, I believe that in a way when he came up with a the thesis, uh, he dealt uh, mostly with the nature of the prerogative state. Why did he deal mostly with the nature of prerogative state? Because that was something that was new. Uh, that was something that was, uh, being written about in one form or another in Nazi law journals and in some Nazi court decisions, um, which is the public sources that Frankel had to write his book, the dual state. He could not risk writing about his own experiences um, in the, uh, manuscript itself. And he didn't refer to any of his own experiences in the manuscript himself. Although later he said that his own experiences contributed, uh, largely to his development of the, uh, thesis, uh, that he in, in that book. Um, so what I in part hope to do in my book is to look at the normative state, to look at the experience that, Frankel had within the normative state, and to see what he did within the normative state, which is uh, controlled more or less by the prerogative state. And I think that uh, goes to the issue of the question you ask is what can a lawyer do, a liberal uh, lawyer, or here a liberal socialist lawyer, uh, under uh, conditions of repression? And what he did. Was uh, he took advantage of the legal procedures that were there in order to make the arguments that he could in front of the judges that were there? uh, Sometimes uh, with success. Uh, I think that when one looks at the sequence of events about uh, at the chronology about how uh, uh, the historical era uh, of the first half of the Nazi regime unfolded, what also became clear is that the with the place in which a lawyer could leverage some power was steadily shrinking. Um, and that the successes that Frankel could have in 1934 and 1935 in court uh, were increasingly no longer available. They're increasingly no longer available. Uh, not only because the resistance itself was being crushed, but also because the Nazi regime reconstituted the judicial system. How did the Nazi regime reconstitute the judicial system? Well, it introduced a set of new courts. Uh, It did that immediately uh, in March of 1933, when it established the uh, special courts uh, in order to implement the uh, Reichstag fire emergency decree. And then it nailed down that it's new institutional innovations with the People's Court, which was established on April 24 of 1934, and that was established for major political crimes like high treason. Uh, It had panels of five judges uh, with two professional judges and three lay judges. When you say lay judges and for the People's Court, that meant members of the SS, the SA, the army and the police Um, and, um, in, um, uh, uh, in, um, April of 1936, that people's court gained parity with the German Supreme court. This reconstitution of the judiciary shifted the political cases, uh, into these, uh, new Nazi controlled courts. And Frankel could not practice in those courts. Uh, those courts would not let. A Jewish lawyer practice. There were one or two occasions where Frankel made the application. He was rejected. And one of the ways that Frankel was able to survive was that he understood how far uh he could press a certain points, what steps he could take, and where to draw back. And he practiced law and represented political defendants in the regular courts uh, for as long as he could. uh, He did not venture into the realm of the prerogative state. Now that is not something which would be unheard of to venture into the realm of the prerogative state. In fact, what lawyers uh, did uh, on occasion, the few lawyers who really wanted to help clients and they were few, but there were those. Uh, might venture into the prerogative state, might make contact with the Gestapo when uh, a client had been arrested um, and put into protective custody with no legal protections. Frankel did not do that. He might have made inquiries uh, at police stations. He did not make arguments uh, to the police or to the Gestapo. So he knew uh, where to uh, pull back. And that is one of the reasons I believe Frankel was able to survive, which was one of the original questions that I asked uh, myself. Um, Another reason, if I might continue on this issue, which I suppose I have introduced, that he was um, able uh, to survive is because of the Nazi regime's view towards lawyers. The Nazis, as illustrated by their use of the prerogative state, Uh, wanted to instrumentalize law for their purposes, but they certainly didn't respect the legal system. They didn't respect laws besides their instrumental use, Um, and they didn't respect lawyers. And I think because they didn't respect lawyers, they underestimated what a lawyer like Frankel and his two colleagues who I mentioned earlier, Heinrich Reinefeld and Werner Villa, were able to do. I think because they discounted lawyers, uh, kind of in a gut way, they discounted lawyers. They didn't notice, for example, that New Beginning had meetings in the offices of Werner Villa, um, uh, Frankel's uh, colleague. So that is another reason that I believe that Frankel was able to survive. He was not only tactful. But he was uh, not, uh, uh, he was in a profession which didn't uh, attract the notice of the Nazi regime. Probably from the point of view of the Nazi regime, somewhat foolishly, because when Frankel met with his clients and Heinrich Reinefeld met with his clients and Werner Villa met with his clients, clients who had been in uh, Gestapo custody, they learned about the torture that their clients had undergone. They gathered information about the torture that their clients had undergone. They used that information in order to alert other clients about what was happening in order to uh, be able to uh, testify during, or, or to give answers during interrogations or to testify in a way that would protect themselves. They got that information out uh, abroad to the social democratic leadership in Prague and to uh, other social Democrats in England. Um, but the uh, Gestapo doesn't seem to have been all that alert. To, well, they certainly weren't alert to that possibility of the position that lawyers were in to gather information and to pass it on. Frankel, like Werner Villa and Heinrich Reinefeld, were on Gestapo lists, um, uh, which indicates that they were Certainly at uh, great risk. In 1935, the Gestapo uh, had a list of 13 attorneys who were helping the Social Democrats. That list of 13 attorneys included Frankel, and from what I can tell, he was the only uh, Jew on that list. Uh, In addition uh, to that, uh, in late January of 1938, the Gestapo made a recommendation to Heinrich Himmler the head of the SS and his uh, infamous aide, Reinhard hey- Heydrich, uh, that they should arrest 30 pro- former prominent SPD members, social democratic members. That list included Frankel. I think that in part of the reason that Frankel survived was that he was also lucky.
2: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Well, I am finishing up on an essay which um, arose uh, out of my work on this book. Uh, And it is an essay on the thinking about resistance by the uh, famous Protestant theologian, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, And I came upon that because when I was dealing with and studying Frankel. I wondered to myself, uh, one of the things that struck me about Frankel is here is somebody who resisted the regime and at the same time came up with a theory of resistance to the regime. Are there other examples of that? And the other example that I came up with was Diedrich Bonhoeffer, um, uh, who was uh, one of the uh, members of the Protestant Confessing Church. Um, and I. Realized in terms of writing this book that the comparison with Frankel was too abstract in general and probably in that sense not helpful, but that Bonhoeffer raised uh, questions about resistance all of its own. And I have a more uh, critical stance towards Bonhoeffer than many of the many, many people who write about him, Um, because I See that he came up with an approach to resistance uh, which actually was uh, not helpful for someone who did not share his religious beliefs, and since he, uh, in fact, had religious beliefs which were so uh, all-encompassing that they, in fact, did uh, have make uh, make a difference to him about what the proper relationship was with the political world. I think it's appropriate to look at his beliefs and to see what the consequences of them uh, are uh, for the political world in which she uh, was in. So I am, uh, I am finishing up on an essay on uh, what I uh, view as an inadequate inadequate approach to resistance uh, by the Protestant theologian, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer.
2: Well, it sounds like a fascinating essay.
0: Well, uh, I've worked hard on it, and um, I am uh, looking forward to uh, finishing it up.
2: Well, Douglas Morris, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity.